If you're staying with us today, we're starting a new series. Uh, one that's going to take us through the summer. What we're going to do is take a close look at the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to show the passage on the screen also. But before we read the passage, and we're just going to cover half of the first chapter right now, let me explain what this book is and why we're going to give our attention to it. Suppose someone had made a lifelong quest to arrive at the pinnacle of human fulfillment and happiness. We all probably have our own ideas about what it would take to get you there, right? We all, if you were pressed for a list about what were the top five things you'd need to have in order to be extremely happy, I bet we could all come up with five things. Uh, probably having enough money that, to cover everything we need, that would be on there. Having a nice place to live would be on there. Having, having friends around us that we enjoy. Um, you know, probably some sense of security that none of it's going to change. I mean, we could come up with our list. Uh, this is what it would take for me to get to the pinnacle of human fulfillment and happiness. Um, well, let's suppose that somebody actually got to that place. Let's suppose that they reached the pinnacle of where you want to be. They, they reached the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And they made it, and then they wrote a book about their experience, and let's call that book Postcards from the Promised Land. Um, what I learned about the secret to life. Uh, I think that would be a popular book, right? Because everybody wants to know, how, how do I live the dream, right? We'd pick that book up in a minute. Well, Ecclesiastes is that book. <laughs> it was written by somebody who lived the dream and who has written his memoir about it. But it's not what you would expect. <laughs> because living the dream wasn't what he expected. And the way to get there wasn't what he expected. We're going to find in the book of Ecclesiastes an honest account of the world that we live in. A world that's full of frustrations and paradoxes and dashed hopes. You're going to relate to what this author has to say about his quest for happiness, I guarantee it. It's going to connect with your experience. There's this sobering theme running throughout the book about the limits, about what this world can give you. But it's not all doom and gloom. Because Ecclesiastes actually does point you to how you can live the dream, how you can have fulfillment. We're going to find in Ecclesiastes the, the unexpected, hidden wisdom, the narrow road that leads to life, as Jesus called it. You're going to hear from a wise veteran who's found that road, and he wants us to take it too. So with that introduction, let's, introduction, let's read the beginning of the memoir, Postcards from the Promised Land. If you'd follow with me as I read Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is God's word. Let's pray. We didn't hear much in there, Lord, that I think would immediately encourage us. But you are so wise. You are so purposeful in how you present truth to us because your ultimate desire is that we really find life. That's what even your purpose is in this passage. So show it to us, we ask, Lord. Open our hearts to engage this honest view and to learn. And may Jesus be glorified in it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's start with the setting of this memoir. Who is the writer? Who's the person who went on this quest to find happiness and fulfillment? Well, he calls himself the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And later in verse 12, he calls himself king over Israel in Jerusalem. Well, there's only one person that that can be. This is King Solomon. He inherited the kingdom of Israel from his father David. He was the son of David who was king in Israel. After Solomon the kingdom split into two halves, two parts, and there was two kings from there, that point on. There was never anymore after that a king in Jerusalem over all of Israel. It ended with Solomon. So we're, we're talking about Solomon here. That becomes even more apparent as we go through the book and we find out just how much stuff this guy had, um, which was really unprecedented. So we're talking about King Solomon. Uh, scholars debate whether or not Solomon wrote it himself or if someone wrote it about him. But there's really no doubt that everything that follows is an account of Solomon's life experience. But you'll notice that he only calls himself the preacher in this book. You never read his name. And scholars have wondered about that. I think it's for a simple reason he and the Lord doesn't want us to read this book as receiving the, the decree from a king, the words of a king to his subjects. He uses the word the preacher because that emphasizes he's this fellow traveler on the same journey that we are, but he's been down the road farther 
And now he's coming back with a report that he wants to preach about. He wants to say, I've been down there, I've been to the end of the rainbow, and now I want to tell you what I saw. He doesn't want us to hear that just from a king, but from somebody who's actually gotten to where we would like to go. Somebody that could be you or me. I think that's why we have the preacher and not King Solomon in this book. So what is his report? What does the preacher want to say to us after he's come down from the mountaintop? First words out of his mouth are, vanity of vanities. (laughs) All is vanity. Not what we would expect. (laughs) That doesn't sound good at all. What does he mean by all is vanity? It's not the word vanity the way that we use it today. When we think of vanity, we think of a person who's full of vanity, right? They're vain. They're all about themselves. There's a pride there, an arrogance there. That's, that's not really what this word is after. Um, the word literally means breath or vapor. Uh, it describes something that's fleeting, something that's elusive. You can't get your hands on it. You can't control it. It escapes you. Some translations say meaningless, meaningless, always meaningless. Others use the word futile. Uh, the preacher is trying to communicate that he's been down the road of life and he's discovered that there's this great emptiness attached to everything. There's a great disappointment to everything. Vapor. He captures this sense of disappointment with a question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Uh, the word gain means profit. It's, it's what's left over after you've made all your expenses and you've sold your product and you have a little bit more than what you started with. Uh, that's what gain is. Um, it means you've improved your situation. Things are looking up. You're getting somewhere. But the preacher seems to be saying, nothing really gets you anywhere. Nothing really improves your situation. What do you gain by working hard all your life? Well, you don't really gain anything. That's the unspoken answer. So how is that as an opener to this book about the secret of life? (laughs) That's not what we were expecting, is it? There's a lot of shock value in that, I think. Uh, I like to climb Colorado mountains And to me, this is like being told at the trailhead to one of the 14ers, don't go up there, there's nothing to see. It's not worth your time. (laughs) Or or maybe more, it's like when you're uh, right about to walk down the aisle to your wedding and somebody says, you know, marriage isn't that great. (laughs) Uh, Right when your hopes are at their highest level, somebody dashes them to the ground. Vapor, vapor, everything's vapor. It doesn't get you anywhere, says the preacher. So my immediate response to his assertion is to challenge that. I want to say, man, what's happened to you? (laughs) Why are you so bitter? Did something terrible happen and now you just see the world through these dark lenses? Uh, That's how I want to respond to it. Surely it's not that bad. Uh, I can think of a lot of things that I've enjoyed that seem like gain to me. I actually enjoy looking from the top of a mountain. It's It's fun. (laughs) My marriage has been very good for me. There's much gain there. So I want to reject this view of the world, and maybe you do too. Because if it's true, what does that mean for our lives? It sounds bleak. 
uh, I just don't want to embrace that, that everything is just vapor. Well, before we cast this aside as the ranting of a bitter man, we should hear him out. Because he's going to tell us why he thinks this way. He, he's seen things. He's experienced things. He's put two and two together. And this is what it adds up to. That, that life is a vapor that passes quickly in futility. And truth be told, you've seen and experienced things that resonate with this. Some, more, some of us more than others. Uh, for example, I remember sitting in the middle lane at a stoplight over on Tower Road, not far from where I live, I'm in the middle lane, somebody pulls up in the right turn lane, brand new car, didn't even have license plates on it yet, still shiny, must have drove it right off the lot. This person pulls out to take the right, current, the right turn, and a semi comes by and rips the bumper right off the front of it. <laughs> Just glass and plastic everywhere, this new car ruined. And I look at that and I think, vanity, vanity of vanities. <laughs> um, stuff like that happens. Who hasn't had a day at work? <laughs> if you're a worker, you're going you're gonna to connect with this. Who hasn't had a day at work where you say, what do I gain from all my toil? Right? Nothing happened right. Or my pile, my in-basket is just as big as when I got here. I made no dent in it. Who doesn't relate to that? How many of us have accidentally deleted a document that you worked hours on? And you go, it's futile. <laughs> we can relate to this guy. We might reject maybe his, his big scope of all of life falling into that category, but we, we know he's, gone, he's on to something here. So let's not reject what the preacher has to say outright. Let's, let's hear him out. Let's make, let him make his case. He has two kinds of evidence. First, he has the argument from observing nature. And his second argument is observing people. Let's take those in order, see what the preacher has seen. Here's his argument from observing nature. He starts out in verse 4 saying, A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Uh, this is a way of saying that despite man's activity from one generation to another, nothing really changes. The earth goes on. The earth outlasts us. We come and go, but the earth is still going to be there. The picture that brings to my mind is the ruins that we saw when we visited Stephanie and Cortez uh, about six or eight weeks ago. Um, we went to this place out in the middle of nowhere. It's on the Utah-Colorado border, it's, and it's called Hovenweep. It's a national monument. And what it is, it's a collection of, of ruins that are 800 years old or more of a civilization that used to live there, the ancient Puebloans, uh, also called the Anasazi. They, they, they built these stone structures all around this cool valley, and there's a story behind it and everything. But all that's left is a few walls, um, but it's amazing that it's still there 800 years later, you know. So it's pretty cool. But I look at that and I think, it's uninhabited now. They, they came and they went. There's nothing left here but ruins. And yet all around it, the rocks are still there. The earth remains, but the generations that live there are gone. Nothing really changed. So that's what the preacher is talking about. He goes on. He starts to talk about... Uh, 
processes happening in the world, the natural world that we see. He talks about the, the sun rising and going down and then hastening to its place to start it all over again. He talks about the wind blowing. It's going around and around and around in this never-ending circle. He talks about streams running into the sea, and yet the sea is never full, and so the streams just keep on running and running and running, and the sea is always the same. In all those things, he's painting this picture of a world in which nothing really changes. There is constant activity, but no progress. The world is just this endless cycle of events that keeps starting over and over and over again. No change, no gain, same old, same old. That's how he sees it. Verse 8 sums up how thinking about this affects him. He says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. In other words, I could give you endless examples of this. I could go beyond wind and all that stuff, and I could show you other things. Multiple examples of this endless cycle of things that keep happening, and yet there's no change, no progress. He's saying nobody can adequately describe just how deep this goes. One translation says it this way, everything is wearisome beyond description. <laughs> it's mind-numbing monotony. It's relentless tedium. It hurts to even think about it. That's what he's saying, verse 8. Now, if you're somebody who likes sunrises <laughs> and sunsets, you'll fly kites in the wind if you actually enjoy the peace and tranquility of a mountain stream, you probably want to disagree with them. Um, indeed, this isn't actually all there is to say about life. We're going to respond to this later. But here's what you should know about the preacher at this point in his thinking. The preacher doesn't deny that there are good things to enjoy in this world. In fact, we're going to find out later just how many pleasures he did enjoy as we go through this book. But this is his considered conclusion after thinking back on all the things that he enjoyed. And his conclusion is, all things are full of weariness. He's not saying that the roller coaster at Elitch Gardens isn't fun. <laughs> He's just pointing out that it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. It isn't going anywhere. <laughs> and eventually you're going to get bored with it. And you're going to see on the other side that there was a weariness attached to it. So that was his first argument from nature. Let's move on to the second one about the vanity, the vapor, the emptiness of life. His argument from observing people. Starting in the second half of verse 8, he says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with, filled with hearing. Now, that's something that strikes a chord with us, I think. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. I can relate to that. Again, I like mountains. I like to see the view from the top. But the fact that every summer I want to go back and do it over and over and over again is because I wasn't satisfied. <laughs> I didn't get enough. There's never enough. One trip isn't enough. I have to keep going back because I want more. Yeah, it's not satisfied with seeing. Same thing with what we hear. Um, I think of music. I remember not long after I became a Christian, I was introduced to Handel's Messiah. Right? We only hear it at Christmas time. Well, I listened to that 
almost every day for a year. I bought the cassette, which I hear now is a cool retro hipster thing to have now, a cassette. My daughter just got a combination stereo thing that's got a cassette player in it. See, we're going back to cassettes. But anyway, I bought the cassette of Handel's Messiah, and I listened to that thing over and over and over and over again. I just had to keep filling my ear with that music, but it wasn't filled. And eventually, I got tired of listening to it. <laughs> I didn't, it didn't have the same effect on me anymore. Familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. And so I got bored with it, and eventually, I stopped listening to the Messiah, and I wanted to hear something else. The eye's not satisfied. The ear isn't filled just like streams emptying into the ocean and the wind swirling around in a circle, there seems to be no progress, no gain, no permanent advancement to our position in life as a result of seeing and hearing. Nothing's really changed. There's a futility in all of it. The preacher goes on to the question. He wants to know whether or not there's really anything new in the world. Anything that breaks out of this mold of predictability. This cycle of emptiness. He wants to know, is there anything new? He thinks about history. And he concludes that what has been done is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. In other words, just like the repeated cycles of the sun going through the sky and the wind following its course, there's a lot of human activity, but it runs in predictable patterns. History keeps repeating itself. We understand this. The First World War, 100 years ago. It's called the Great War. It's also called, or was called, the War to End All Wars. But it didn't. (laughs) Just a few decades later, there was World War II. There was the sequel that wasn't supposed to happen. And there's been many more sequels since then, and there's going to continue to be sequels. Uh, What has been done is what will be done, the preacher would say. Same things that we, consider, uh, that we consider progress. Right now I'm reading the biography of Alexander Hamilton. He's a very fascinating guy. I never knew. He's on your $10 bill. I never knew why he was there. Isn't he? Is it the $10 bill? I think it is. He's on one of our bills. And I'm reading how the Constitution came into being, because he was a part of that. He was one of the founding fathers And it's very fascinating. I had no idea how unlikely it was that the 13 original states would actually form a central government. There were a lot of people who didn't want that to happen. It's amazing that it ever happened. Where did they get their idea of of the government that we have now? Where did the Constitution come from? Their idea of president, a legislator, and judiciary, that three-part form of government that we have. Where did they get that? Well, they got that from previous generations. They took a little bit of this from the Romans and a little bit of this from the British and a little bit of that from some other cultures, and they stewed all that in a pot. They thought about their situation, and out came our Constitution. But was it really new? Not really. No, they they got it from other people, other, other ideas before them. It's just another way, another attempt at trying to govern people. That's been going on since day one, and we're going to continue to find ways to govern people, good or bad. It's not really new. So the preacher sees, he asks the question, verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? And his answer is no. (laughs) It has already been in the ages before us. No, there is nothing new under the sun. 
Now, again, we might want to protest a blanket statement like that. An iPhone seems pretty new, right? Uh, drones delivering packages to your front door from Amazon. That seems new. Uh, self-driving Tesla cars. That, that seems very new <laughs> to me. Uh, what does he mean? It has already been in the ages before us. Well, I don't think he's saying that there's no such thing as invention. There are new things in the sense that we haven't seen this before. But they're not new when you consider the big picture of things. He's saying that nothing really breaks out of the mold of the cyclical nature of all things. A so-called new thing might promise something that we haven't seen before, but after a while we realize that nothing has significantly changed. For example, everybody's got a smartphone now. But has it made us better communicators? <laughs> has it improved what we communicate? <laughs> I think all you have to do is look at the comment thread on a political post, and, and you will despair of the nature of man, I think, when you, when you read that. Uh, I don't think that we've made much progress in terms of what we want to communicate, what's coming out of our hearts. Um, we'd rather actually not know what everybody wants to say um, with our smartphones. Uh, we can cure diseases that we've never been able to cure before, but we still die. We can get a car that drives itself now. Um, but, you know, we've had that before. Uh, it's called taxi drivers, right? You get in the back seat and you read your book and you get to where you're going to go. Uh, before taxi drivers, it was stagecoaches. Before stagecoaches, it was the camel train. Uh, we've always had a way to get somewhere without you being the one to do the driving. <laughs> So in a sense, that's not new. Just the way we do it is different. No, there's, there's nothing new under the sun, the preacher says. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no real progress. New discoveries are made, but people are the same. We have the same challenges from one generation to another. And then in verse 11, he, he puts the final dagger into any kind of cheerful outlook uh, that we might still be holding on to about life. He says, in effect, nobody is going to remember you when you die. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Again, another cycle. Generations before us, they were full of activity and accomplishments, and already we've forgotten most of it. And generations to come are going to forget what we do, and even what they do in the future is going to be forgotten by the generation after them. The best you can hope for is that someone will tour, tour the ruins of your home someday, 800 years later. The best you can hope for is that maybe you'll have your picture in a history book. Or that somebody 100 years from now will Google your name and try and find out something about you. But basically, your whole life comes and goes without any lasting impact, says the preacher. So let's sum up his argument <laughs> in this introduction to his book, his memoir, Looking Back on Life. Here's his big conclusion about life. Life is a big hamster wheel. And we have a hamster, so I really have that in my mind right now. You know the hamster wheel. 
just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs around it. It means you get nowhere, you gain nothing, and in the end, nobody remembers what you did. End of sermon. <laughs> How's that for a ray of sunshine? <laughs> I think if we ended this sermon right now, we'd all go home thoroughly depressed. If that's the way things are, what is there to live for? Why bother? What's the point? And the answer is, there is no point in it. That is, there is no point in it if there is no God. Because you'll notice something about what we've read. God is completely absent from this report. He's never mentioned once. Everything that the preacher describes, he describes as what happens under the sun. Verse 3, what does man gain by all of his toil? Under the sun. Verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. Under the sun is a phrase the preacher uses a total of 29 times in this book. The preacher is talking about what life is like if you only look at it from ground level, from a purely human point of view, just what your eyes can see, just what your senses can experience and your mind try to make sense of. This is what life is like if there is no God. This is the brutally honest conclusion that you have to reach if John Lennon's worldview was right when he asked us to imagine no hell below us, above us only sky. If that's true, then life is a great big hamster wheel, and it means nothing. Life in such a world leads nowhere. It gains you nothing, and eventually you will be forgotten. You might enjoy the ride for a while. You might busy yourself and not think about ultimate questions. But in the end, there, if there is no God, you too will say, what did I gain with all my toil, with all my seeing and hearing and doing? And you will say, I gained nothing. And friends, that's not an answer that we can live with. Because we can't live without hope. You will either try to forget about it and just enjoy the moment, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or you will rage against the machine and try to break out of this endless cycle of things and try to find something new. Or you'll do what the preacher wants you to do, which is to ask the question, is there anything happening over the sun? Is there anything happening over the sun that isn't like this? Is there some hope beyond what I can see and discern under the sun? That's the question he wants us to ask. And it's a very good thing if you're asking that question because the answer is yes. There is something over the sun. Above us is not only sky. There is a God and that God makes all the difference. There's a God who created the sun and the world beneath it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, according to Psalm 19.1. 
His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And more specifically, he has made himself known to us by entering our existence under the sun in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself has condescended to come and live in this world of futility, this world of vapor, this world of endless cycles, and he's come into this world in the person of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He subjected himself to vanity and vapor and fleeting futility so that he could provide us a rescue from its grip so he could provide a reason to live with hope. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It was to make all things new, as Revelation 21 talks about it, new for the one who trusts in him. The one who trusts in Jesus as Savior is not on a hamster wheel, going nowhere, gaining nothing, and then going out of memory. To the contrary, the Scriptures provide hope to the person who trusts in God. You, you are gaining something. You are going somewhere. And you won't be forgotten. Let's just consider what an over-the-sun perspective of this world does, how that changes things. When you see this same world with an over-the-sun perspective, with God in the picture, that changes everything. So let's go back to some of the things the preacher said and see how the knowledge of God in Christ changes things. This is the life over the sun. The under the sun perspective sees only futile toil. No gain for your work. But an over the sun perspective sees the possibility of 1 Corinthians 15.58 abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. An over-the-sun perspective sees the truth of 1 Timothy 6.6, that there is great gain in godliness with contentment. The the under-the-sun perspective sees the sun rising and setting and hurrying around to rise again like it's on this laborious treadmill, and you feel like you're on that treadmill with it. But an over-the-sun perspective sees that cycle as a reminder that God has ordered the universe to have stability and rhythm. Genesis 1.1, and there was, or Genesis chapter 1, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And the third and the fourth and the fifth, there's order in that. Instead of just seeing a laborious treadmill day and night, day and night, we see God's faithfulness, God creating an ordered universe, one in which we can exist. It's not chaos. An over-the-sun mentality sees that. An over-the-sun perspective sees God's creation as happily carrying out His will. Psalm 19.5 says, The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. <laughs> totally different view. I love that sunset because it shows that God is out there, and he's created this world, and it's good. It's a good world. And, and the creation is doing what he told it to do, what he's enabling it to do. And it points to his glory. The under-the-sun perspective sees satisfaction as always being out of reach. You're, 
ear is never satisfied, your ear is never filled, your eye is never satisfied. But an over-the-sun perspective cries out to God in Psalm 90, verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. This morning, this morning I'm going to have satisfaction. Because I'm going to dwell on your steadfast love, your commitment to me through Jesus. Over the sun is the God of Psalm 17.15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And the likeness that we will see, that we will know, if we believe in Jesus, is Jesus Christ. He's the likeness that's going to satisfy us. Like the woman at the well in John 4, she kept coming to get water over and over and over again. It never satisfied her. And Jesus said to her, Everybody who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That's eternal satisfaction that Jesus gives. To see life under the sun is to see the same old, same old, and nothing new. But to see life over the sun is to see Jesus in Revelation 21.5 saying, Behold, I am making all things new. And the first thing He's making new, if you're a believer in Him, is that He's changing you. He's already changed you and He's changing you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new. Taken from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. Taken out from underneath the ruler of this world and given a new king, a great king, King Jesus. Taken away from despair and futility and given a, a hope and a future, a life forevermore with God. That change already started with the day that you trusted Christ. You became a new creation then. You're not what you were once. It's Christ transforming your life by the Spirit from one degree of glory to another, preparing you for eternal glory. That's what He does to everybody who puts their trust in Him. Of, of the Christian, of the genuine believer, you can truly say, see, this is new. <laughs> this breaks out of the mold of this world, this feudal world. This points to something great. Let me wrap this up and draw it to a conclusion. It's God that makes all the difference between a feudal life on the hamster wheel and new life on the road that leads to glory. If you've experienced the weariness of all things, then the Lord calls out to you with an invitation from Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The bottom line message of this chapter is that life without God is wearisome, but Jesus gives rest to the weary. Jesus makes it new. Jesus takes the vanity out of life and he makes it worth living. And I just want to close with some application from this. As you go through your day and through your life, you're going to run into the futility of things. You're going to be tempted to say, what do I gain from what I'm doing? 
Why am I working so hard? Where is it going? You're going to want to say sometimes, vanity of vanity, all is vanities. All is vanity. But what, here's what we can do in that moment. We ask ourselves, how does the presence of God change this? What about him or what has he promised that might take the sting out of the futility of this and help me to see something good in it? Let me give a couple of examples. One of my favorite verses, at least the one that I can remember pretty easily, is Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So if I'm staring out the kitchen window at the end of a hard day, a day of futility, I can do one of two things. I can muse <laughs> and go back over the whole day and think about how awful it was and that tomorrow will be just the same, I'm sure of it. Or I can see that sunset and I can say, but wait a minute, God is doing something. God is here. Somehow he takes vapor and dust particles and a burning globe millions of miles away and he turns that into the spectrum for me to see right now. God is working. God is here. No, life can't be futile if God is like that, if he's doing that, if he's active in this moment. And he will be tomorrow too. And that changes our perspective. Or how about, how about this? Maybe it's your new car that gets the bumper tore off after you drove it off the lot. Or maybe you lose your wallet and you have to replace your driver's license and stop all your credit cards and lose all the cash that was in there. Or maybe you get let go from your job. How do you fight the feeling of futility there? Well, you could say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This isn't purposeless. This isn't meaningless. What happens right now is happening according to purpose. God is in this. I don't know what he's doing. I don't see over the sun as he does. I'm still under it, so everything's kind of cloudy for me. But I know there's somebody over the sun who's doing this. So I'm not going to despair. I'm going to believe that he's good and that he's for me. And he wouldn't let this happen if it wasn't true, if it wasn't best for me. That's how you fight for an over-the-sun perspective. That's how you keep from despair. Life without God in the picture is bleak. But with him, with an active pursuit of him in Christ, it's not vanity. There is gain. There's something new every day. And the writer of Lamentations reminds us that his mercies are new every morning. So may the Lord give us eyes to see that this week and fight for that over-the-sun picture. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to have this, have the clouds part and have us see this. <laughs> to, to have our gaze directed away from just horizontal up to vertical and to see you're above it all. There is a future and a hope. Oh Lord, give it to us today again. Refresh it in our hearts. Help us this week not to cave in to just musing and mulling over what's going on, but to look beyond that to you and to get fresh encouragement that life isn't vain. Not in Christ it isn't. In his, in his name we pray. Amen.